0: Open up to John chapter 19, and I'm going to start reading in verse 16 down to verse 30. John nineteen sixteen. And so he then delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And therefore many of the Jews had read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Latin and Greek. so the chief priests and the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but write that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered them, what I have written, I have written. And then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, a part for each of the soldiers and also his tunic. And now the tunic was seamless. It was woven in one piece from the top. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it it, and decide whose it shall be. And this was in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been already finished, in order to that the scripture would be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. And a jar full of sour wine was standing there, and they put a sponge full of sour wine on a branch of hyssop, and they brought it to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Join me in one, quick, one more quick word of prayer. Jesus, this text tonight is it's beyond human comprehension, and it is beyond human utterance. And so, Lord, I pray that you communicate to your people in a supernatural fashion that is beyond me, far beyond me, far beyond any man or any woman. Lord, teach us from your word. Let your word speak for itself by your sovereignty, by your power, by your guidance, and by your leading. Thank you that this is true. Thank you that this is documented. This is... (laughs) <laughs> this is the lifeblood of humanity, your blood on the cross. This is the payment of sins. This is the defeat of death here with your death on the cross. Lord, it's, it's, it's far beyond what we can understand, so help us to understand. We come before you humbly and ask to receive what it is that you would have for us to listen to, what it is that we would learn, and how it is that we would grow and apply this to our lives in a new and fresh way. Lord, I pray that you would make this people here tonight a people who grow in affection and devotion and love and obedience and submission to you, not because you're a bully, not even because you demand it, which you do, but also out of a heart of love that's melted by this great act of grace here that we're reading in this page. We trust you with all these things, Jesus. Have your way with us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So tonight, one of the things that we're going to see is, and what we have, have been seeing and we're going to continue to see, is this Old Testament imagery, prophecy, prediction, coming to fruition in the life of Jesus again and again and again. And again, these Old Testament types, these, these figures, these, these people and these events, things that took place hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, culminate here at this very moment that we're considering tonight. The imagery is astounding. It's beautiful. It's profound. It's comprehensive. Jesus here is getting a lot of things done. And one of the things that we see first and foremost that it, it calls our mind back to if we, if we pause and think about this critically is, is we see here the full consummate story of the Old Testament figure of Joseph. If you remember the Old Testament figure Joseph, he had a heck of a life. Um, a lot of awesome and a lot of awful going on in Joseph's life. He had 11 older brothers. He was his dad's favorite. That made his brothers hate him. Uh, The famous story of his father giving him the coat of many colors, which many of you might be familiar with, uh, as a symbol of being daddy's favorite. And his brothers were so jealous, and they hated Joseph so much that they... They faked his death. They threw Joseph into a pit. They ripped the coat of colors off of his back. They wiped it in blood, animal's blood, and then went back to their father and said, your son Joseph has been killed. Um, They also... I skipped a part they sold him into slavery they sold him into captivity and he went away never to be seen again and the brothers took the coat to their dad your boy is dead and they thought that it was a done deal and they're never going to have to deal with their little brat brother ever again well as the story goes the lord was with joseph and he gave him the ability to interpret dreams and that ability to interpret dreams aided Joseph immensely. Joseph by no fault of his own was wrongly accused and he was thrown into prison and while he was in prison he was able to interpret dreams and this caught the attention of the authorities around him and this is a really long story that I'm making very short. His ability to interpret dreams made it to the highest up authorities in the land and Joseph told them Interpreting Dreams said that there is going to be seven years of bounty. There is going to be food. There is going to be water. The sky is going to open up. And we're going to have crops for seven years of bounty, and we need to save it because immediately following that, sev- that seven-year bounty, there's going to be seven years of famine. And so that's exactly what they did. They collected all of the food. They, sh- they put it in their storehouses, and when the seven years of famine eventually came, sure enough, they had food to divvy out to the people, and they saved millions and millions of lives. Well, some of the people that came for that food were Joseph's brothers, and they didn't recognize him. Eventually, they do. There's this whole big drama. There's this whole big scene of repentance. It's, it's, it's very dramatic. It's very gripping, and eventually, Joseph's dad dies and the brothers now they see that their brother they see that Joseph is in a is in a position of authority he's in a position of leadership and they're afraid that now that their dad is dead that Joseph is going to turn on them and use his power to kill them and in this powerful scene in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 they're pleading with Joseph to have mercy on them and Joseph says to them you meant this for evil everything that you did You meant it for evil. You meant to have me destroyed. You meant to have me killed. You meant to have me done away with, but God meant it for good. And if you hadn't done what you had done, then I wouldn't have been here to save all of these millions of people from this famine. That's a heck of a paraphrase, but that's how the story goes. You meant it for evil and God meant it for good. And what we see here tonight is the climatic example of what men mean for evil. God is mysteriously and sovereignly working in the midst to bring about good. And we need to pause and reflect on that because our lives may come under attack. I say this almost every week. And the reason why I bring this up again and again and again is because I want to I want to. I want to burn it into our mind that whenever life doesn't turn out the way that we want, whenever things happen that are bad, do not come to the conclusion that God has abandoned you. Do not come to the conclusion that he is aloof or that he's indifferent or that he's maniacal and he's doing it to you on purpose. Joseph knew, listen, what you guys did was evil and you meant it as such, but God meant it for good. And what these guys are doing here is evil and Jesus submits himself to it because he knows that it is good. It's, it's amazing listening to the story because this is the culmination of Jesus' life. He's been predicting this. He knew that this was gonna happen all along. And what's fascinating is that he, this is one of those obvious things that's really easy to miss. Nobody was more obedient. Nobody was more trusting. Nobody was more submitted to the Father and His will and His plan than Jesus Christ Himself. Yes and amen. And the entire time, He knew that it was going to get Him killed. And here, we kind of sign up for the Jesus train because we think that we'll be taken care of in the ways that we think we should be taken care of. That The Lord will meet those expectations and so we naturally draw the conclusion whenever those expectations are not met that God is not good or that he's not paying attention or that he doesn't care. Jesus was more submitted than anyone and he knew it was leading to his death. He warns us in Luke chapter 14 to count the cost of following him. Count the cost. Think about it. Be sober-minded. This isn't just some flippant decision. This isn't a flippant gospel. This isn't a flippant God. And I don't know about the rest of the world, but I know that in, the, that in North America, we get pretty flippant with the gospel. It's pretty easy for us to sit back with our central heating and our air conditioning and our running water and our electricity and think, well, this is the good life. And so long as this keeps up, then I'll keep going to church. I'll keep praying. Because we think that that's, what, that's, like, that's like the bargaining chip. It's like a vending machine. It's like, well, as long as I keep doing these little acts, then I'm going to keep getting something back. Jesus knew he was going to die, and he continued all the way to the end. And what we see here is God's holiness, his righteousness, his justice, and even his wrath, and also his love and his mercy and his kindness. He must punish sin because he is holy, but he also wants to forgive the sinner. And so he puts Jesus on the cross in our place. Love and holiness meet here at the cross. And so, with that in mind, Jesus is led to be crucified. And crucifixion, I'm not going to, I, I, I thought back and forth about getting into the physical details of just how awful crucifixion is. And I'm not, I'm not going to take the time to do that because there's a lot of other good stuff here that we should be paying attention to. But if you're curious, there's a lot of information about the brutality of the crucifixion. But what I will say is that crucifixion was so awful and so ghastly that even the Romans knew that it was kind of messed up. Even the Romans knew we, sh- we shouldn't be doing this to people. And they would convince themselves that they will do it, but will only do it to people who are subhuman. They would not crucify Romans. Roman citizens were the elite. They would crucify slaves or they would crucify foreigners but never a Roman citizen because that's a real person, right? We've seen that repeated throughout history. But Jesus takes this on and notice that it says he was led away to be crucified. They took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which in Hebrew is Golgotha. They didn't have to force him. They didn't have to beat him and drag him. It says that he went. He went out. He was even carrying his own cross. And this is a, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. We've seen Jesus from the, from the time of his arrest and forward that he does not hide. He does not cower. He actually steps forward. He gets in between the people who are trying to arrest him and his disciples. He, steps, he didn't hide. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas knew he would be there. When the, when the mob shows up to arrest him, he doesn't cower. It says that he went forth. He approached them, and now he's being led to crucifixion. He's not being coerced. He's not being forced. And we see this prophetically in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. We see that coming to fruition here at his arrest. They did not have to kick and fight and scream and drag our Savior to the cross. He came here, set his face like flint, and he went willingly to the place called Golgotha. Golgotha is the Aramaic word. You've also heard the word Calvary, the cross of Calvary. That's the Latin term. It was called the place of the skull, and this is, this is just for information's sake. It's a little ridiculous, but if you, if you do any investigation into this, this is what you'll find, and so I figured I'd share it with you. The question has been asked, why is it called the place of the skull? And some people believe it's because the mount that Jesus was crucified on top of, granted, a small mount, not, not a west coast mount, a, a, a far east mount, a, a, a hill, What he was crucified on somehow looked like a skull. When you stood back and looked at it from a distance, it resembled a skull. Some people actually say that the reason why this was called the place of the skull is because it was believed there is an ancient legend that the skull of Adam was buried there. How they know that after the flood, I don't know. They're just making stuff up. Some people said that there were so many skulls left over from people who had been crucified that it had the name place of the skull, but all of that's really conjecture. I didn't even need to say it, but again, some of this stuff is just interesting. But they took him there to Golgotha. In verse 18, there they crucified him, and with him two other men on either side, and Jesus in between. We're told in the Synoptic Gospels that these two men were thieves, that Jesus was put in between them, again furthering The prophecy of Isaiah 53 that says that he would be numbered with the transgressors, right there in between them, front and center. Like any common criminal, he was put up there to be jeered at and to be mocked and to be hated. Our Lord crucified on a cross. And Pilate wrote a note, an inscription, and he put it on the cross and what was, ri- what was written was Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And therefore many of the Jews read this transcription for the place there where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. The gospels vary in the wording. This is, this is the, the inscription that Pilate puts above the head. It was common practice for when someone was crucified to put the charge that they had been found guilty of above their head so that as people walked by they could see what this person was being crucified for. And it also, part of Jesus being led through the city carrying his own crossbeam, and the very public display of him, him and the other two being crucified and, and many people seeing and the, the writing in Hebrew and Latin and Greek was because there was a massive amount of people that were passing by. There was a lot of folks that could see Jesus on the cross. And the reason why the Romans did that is because they were saying, look at what crime will get you. Crime does not pay. Behave yourself or this will be you. Mutilated, naked, and nailed to a cross so you better act right this is a point where where the critics will say that the bible is unreliable the bible is fantasy the bible is a lie and the reason that they point out is because all four gospels talk about this all four gospels mention that that Pilate wrote this inscription and none of the four gospels match up perfectly with the language that it's used it's very close He's, it's all saying the same thing, but the, the words that are used are a little bit different. And so they say, hey, see, look, the, the gospels don't line up, therefore we don't have to listen to it. Well, he wrote it in three different languages. So we could guess that maybe the way that you write something in one language is not the same exact way that you write it in another language. I remember being really confused by this when I was, when I was living in Peru. In, in English, we say, I am hungry. In Spanish, you say, yo tengo hambre," which means I have hunger. That's what you say to people. You say, I have hunger. It's different, but it's communicating the exact same thing. So I don't know why people are always trying to pick at the Bible, especially with stupid stuff like this. That just doesn't make any sense. He wrote it in three different languages. Of course, it's going to be a little bit different. And these guys wrote it down a little bit differently. But what's amazing here is that there's also some very strong symbolism about who Jesus is. This was written in Hebrew, Latin and Greek. And Hebrew was the re- was the religion was the language of religion. The Hebrew people, the people of Israel spoke this language. Latin was more the Roman language and they this was the, the language of the law. And Greek, which was very common, it was kind of, it was all over the place. I have been on little faraway hills in Thailand and seen signs written in English really kind of strange but Greek was sort of that way it was it was everywhere it was the it was the language of culture and of science and philosophy and all of these things find their meaning find their find their their origin and their greatest expression in the person of Jesus Christ in the language of religion we're considering religion Jesus is God manifest in the most explicit comprehensive way that human beings can handle. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, John one, one, two, and three, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does God do? What does he say? How does he respond? Look at Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. And he is also the law. We're told in 1 Corinthians 9, 21 that we are under the law of Christ. He is our king, he is our Lord. And he's also science, culture, philosophy. He's a, he is the he is the culmination of science this little ball of water and land and human beings and animals tilted on its axis stuck between the gravitational pull of the moon and the sun and spinning at a thousand miles an hour and around the sun at 360,000 miles an hour something like that all of that happens the oceans being evaporated and turning into clouds and falling back to earth in the form of rain and growing crops i mean this amazing system that we live in it's all held together by the person jesus christ all things are made through him, by him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, says Colossians 1.17. And following Hebrews says it like this, that he holds up the entire universe by the word of his power. Every breath that we take, every rising and setting of the sun is because Jesus sets it up that way and he sustains it that way. He is the answer to all science. And he is the answer to philosophy. He is, the answer, he is the answer to all knowledge that we seek. Colossians 2, 3 says that in him is all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in Hebrew and Latin and Greek, it is written, Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews. Pilate had no idea what he, is, what he was doing. He was absolutely right. He was trying to be funny. He was trying to mock the Jews. He was trying to be obnoxious but he said something, he wrote something that made it into the Bible because it's absolutely true. Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews. Jesus the Nazarene, king of the cosmos. Everything finds its place in him. He is the source of it all. And so this made, this made the, the, the religious leaders angry. Therefore the Jews, they read this inscription, uh, and so the chief priests were saying to him, do not write, <clears throat> king of the Jews, but write that he said, I am king of the Jews. By, by this inscription, what, what Pilate was basically doing was saying, here is the, the most epic you. This is, the, this, is the, this is the top crop of your people. This is your king. This is the best you that ever lived, and look at him. You guys are garbage you guys are trash, and it made, it, it made the Jews angry. Pilate was upset, Pilate had just been ousted, he had just been bested by these men, and now he's, he's trying in his last, his last chance of saving face, he's trying to make fun of them, and they call him out, and finally he sticks up for himself, but it's too little too late. Verse 22, he says, what I have written, I have written. Pilate's full of contempt, he's full of hate, he's mad at these Jews, he takes it out on Jesus, this poor guy. This poor guy, what do you say about Pontius Pilate? He finally had the spine to stick up for himself, but it was too late. Jesus had already been handed over and crucified. And so then the soldiers, verse 23, they took his garments after they crucified him, and they made four parts, a part for each soldier and also his tunic. And now that tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. There's a lot of discussion about this. Um, some say that, that Jesus was likely wearing his, his one-piece tunic and then maybe a, a, a light coat over it and that they took that outer coat and they broke it up into four pieces they tore it cut it and each of them took a piece or it could have been that they took one guy took his shoes one guy maybe took a belt maybe one guy took that outer coat maybe he had a head covering of some sort we really we really don't know these are the things that some of the things that commentators get lost in talking about this sort of stuff but we do know that they came to his tunic and it was sewn in one piece it was seamless and it, it wouldn't have, this sort of tunic, it's not something that would have been real lavish, it wasn't real flashy, it wasn't Armani, but it was, it, it was nice. And these guys didn't want to destroy it, they didn't want to cut it in half, and so they cast lots. They said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. <clears throat> and this was in order that the scripture would be fulfilled. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. the bible speaks in language like putting on something is putting on some sort of some sort of virtue we clothe ourselves in righteousness we we put something on like a garment colossians chapter 3 says that you have put off the old self with its practices and you have now put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator we're also told in First Peter to put on humility, to clothe yourself in humility. And, I, and I, I don't like to get real lost in allegory. I think that it can be easily overdone, but I do think that it has its place. And I, I wonder, it's, it's, a, it's at least a sweet thought to me, if I may share it with you, that his garment wasn't ripped into pieces, his tunic wasn't ripped into pieces, because... It was a symbol. It was an image of his character. He was, he was wearing perfection. He was clothed in righteousness. He was clothed in, 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 in perfect character, never sinned in word, thought, or deed. And this, this seamless, sewn from top to bottom tunic that he was wearing was left alone because it symbolized his perfection. That may not be true, but that's something that I read and I see sort of the poetry in the story, and I think that's. That's a sweet idea because he is perfect. He was perfect then. He was perfect before. He's perfect now. He's always been perfect. His character has always been nothing but light and life and perfection. And so they cast lots. And this, again, is a a perfect fulfillment of prophecy. Psalms 22, verse 18 says that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And, you know, I can't help but see here a fulfillment, but a, a reversal of the, of the book of Genesis, the reversal of our first parents. It's, I, I, this, I, I realized this years ago, but for years prior to that, I never knew that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it says that they made clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. They were, they were, they were created naked, They had no shame in that. There was no sin. There was no reason to think that Adam and Eve's standard was any different, so they trusted each other because they were under God's standard. But then they sinned, and the standard changed, and now all of a sudden, I can't trust you. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what your standard is. And so they clothed themselves in fig leaves. But what's fascinating, and I didn't know this for years, is that we're actually told that then God made them clothes out of leather. They sewed together some fig leaves, but then the Lord clothed them with better clothing. The Lord clothed them with leather. And it's like even there in, the, in the, the very first mention of sin, God's grace is already flooding humanity. He makes them clothes. They sinned, and he made them clothing. And here the Son of Man is taking on sin, and he's stripped naked. It just speaks to his humility. It speaks to his grace. It speaks to how thoroughly he humbled himself. Humbled himself beyond what we can comprehend, but when we see things like that, I think that it sinks in a little bit more. Adam and Eve were clothed in their sin, and Jesus was stripped naked. It's an incredible reality. He's carrying his own cross He's being led through town. He's being mocked. He's being jeered at, and he gets no relief. This is the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 22. Abraham and Isaac traveling together. Abraham has been called to sacrifice his own son. It's a very, it's a, it's, it's a very hard story, but it's a story of testing. And there, is, there he is, young, young Isaac, holding his own wood on his back, carrying it up the mountain asking his father where is the sacrifice and Abraham says the Lord will provide and at that very moment whenever Isaac was laid out on that wood offering and his father is about to plunge a knife into his chest the Lord stops him and says do not harm the boy and there's a ram in the thicket to replace the offering that would have been his son but here the son has no replacement Here the son is stripped naked, beaten and whipped, and hung on a cross with no relief. He goes all the way to the end. It's barbaric. It's unbelievable. And it seems like verse 25 has this moment of pause because it says, therefore the soldiers did these things. The soldiers did these things. It's just sort of like a pause and a review, like reflect on everything that we've been talking about. The soldiers actually did this. What you meant for evil, though, God meant for good. The soldiers did these things. And then standing around, standing by near the cross was his mother. Brave women. Powerful women. Most of the disciples have fled. We're going to see that John is still there, but everybody else is gone. They're scared out of their minds. But here are these strong women. His mother is there and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene there's been a lot of discussion about who, who are these people? Do we know who? We know, okay, we know Mary, his mother, but his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas. Well, we know from the other gospels, from Mark chapter 15 specifically, Mark chapter 15 points out that there is Mary, the mother of James the less and of Joseph, and also there is Salome. Now, many commentators believe that Salome is probably Mary's sister that's mentioned here and Salome was John's mom, Salome, the wife of Zebedee, the mother of James and John. So if that is true, and many of the commentators believe that it is, we don't know for certain, but if that is true, it means that John and Jesus were cousins. Mary is there, her sister, most likely Salome. Mary, the wife of Clopas, the mother of of James the Less and of, and of Joseph and of Mary Magdalene. and Mary Magdalene was in love with the Lord. We know from Luke chapter 8 that she had seven demons cast out of her and these women are with Jesus all the way to the bitter end. In verse 26, when Jesus saw that his mother was standing there and he saw the disciple whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. There's so, there's so much that's happening here. This is the third word from the cross that Jesus spoke. And what we see Jesus doing here, he, he doesn't call his mom, mom. He calls her woman. And we saw this all the way back, starting in chapter two, whenever Jesus is with his mother at the wedding in Cana and they run out of wine. And Mary comes to Jesus and she knows that Jesus could probably do something about this and she asks him to and he says to her, woman, my hour has not yet come. And that term woman in English can feel disconnected, it can feel cold, it, it it has a tone to it. We just we hear it as woman, but this is not what Jesus is doing. This is a term of endearment. It is sweet, it is respectful, and it's not the word mom. There's no getting around that. He doesn't call her mom. What's happening here is that Jesus is pulling away. Part of what's happening here is, is what was what was prophesied in Luke chapter 2, whenever Jesus was an infant. And Simeon comes and meets the baby Jesus. Simeon, this old prophet who the Lord had told would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. And Mary and Joseph bring the baby infant Jesus into the temple. And Simeon is there and he takes, he takes Jesus up in his arms. And Simeon Luke chapter 2, verse 34, it says that Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce through your soul as well. And what we saw in John chapter 2 is Jesus starting to create that distance between him and his mom in an earthly familial matter. She no longer can just view him as her sweet baby boy. She's going to have to understand that he is the savior of the entire cosmos and she has to believe in him as her lord and king and that's a sword that's piercing through her soul she's watching her son die on a cross and I wonder if those words of Simeon rung in her ears I wonder if she remembered then I was told that this was going to happen but what's beautiful because the gospel is beautiful is that this this separation is a only temporary and B it's going to be met again with something so much better he's leaving her in John's care most likely because Joseph at this point is dead Jesus's dad his earthly father is dead his brothers are not believers we learned that in John chapter 7 and so Jesus taking care of his mom leaves her in in the under the supervision under the care of John his beloved disciple and we're told in scripture, when Jesus was, was asked about marriage in the, in the kingdom of God, he said they're, they're not gonna be married. People are not gonna be given over to marriage. And I've known a lot of married people who have, who have taken that verse and have been really bummed out on it, but things are not going to be worse in heaven than they are here. Every relationship that we have here, the best relationships, relationship between mom and dad, siblings, spouses, parent and child, all of the best relationships that we have here are but, and I mean the good ones. Sometimes those relationships are not good, and I, and I know that, but they're supposed to be. And so as good as the relationship is, I mean, on Jesus' end, the relationship between him and his mom was perfect. It was perfect. Mary was a sinner, but Jesus wasn't. It was a beautiful mother and son relationship, and Jesus is pulling back because in the kingdom, the relationship that they're going to have is going to outshine this one, by by infinity. It's going to be so much better. The relationships that we have with one another are going to be beyond comprehension. The best relationships that we have here are a whisper of what we have to look forward to. And so he says, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He left Mary in his care. It's incredible, you know, even as he's dying, Jesus is just fixing everything. We're told in Luke chapter 23 that he cries out, he, f- he prays for forgiveness for those who are nailing him to the cross. One of those thieves that he was h- hanging next to, he saved him. The thief looked over at Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I will and I promise you that this very day we will be together in paradise. Can you imagine just, a, just that moment after death when Jesus and that, and, and that thief that had just been hanging on the cross next to each other, were in eternity. What a sweet, sweet hug that must have been. But the Bible tells us that if we suffer with him, we will be raised with him, and we will have that same sort of affection because we suffer just like Jesus suffered, maybe in different ways, but we are also, as Christians, called to suffer. Jesus is taking care of stuff as he's dying. He prays for his enemies, he saves a criminal, and he's taking care of his mom. And he shows us how often the Lord takes care of us. He's leaving his mother in care, in the care of his friend. And many, many, many times the way that the Lord ministers to us, the way that the Lord cares for us, Whether it be a word of encouragement, whether it be through the scriptures, whether it be financially or emotionally, having a shoulder to cry on, oftentimes the way that the Lord takes care of his children is through his other children. So be on the lookout. I told you a couple weeks ago that my friend Will just called me out of the blue, just asked me how I was doing, and it made my day. Because I had been having a rough week, and it was so sweet just to be taken care of by my bro, in the Lord—that's the real blood, it's thicker than water. This is this is the blood, the family of the blood. Blood is thicker than water is meant to convey this idea that like, well, family ties come first. Well, this is this is the blood that is thicker than anything else, the family that is underneath the blood of Jesus. Verse twenty-eight. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been finished, and in order that scripture would be fulfilled, he cried out and said, I am thirsty. Jesus here had suffered the wrath of God. He had suffered torment. He had suffered beyond what we can ever imagine. He has taken care and prayed for his enemies. He has taken care and he has saved a thief hanging next to him. He has taken care and he has watched after his mother. He has taken on the full, drank the cup of wrath to the dregs. And now that this work is complete, he takes a brief moment and expresses his own need. Now that all of that is done, he says one thing about himself. I'm thirsty. And what an, what an incredible incredible thirst that must have been and this also itself was a fulfillment of prophecy in psalms twenty-two fifteen, he says my is written my strength is dried up as a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws psalm sixty-nine twenty-one, for my thirst they gave me vinegar we're going to get to that in a second he experienced this thirst he experienced this taste of hell so that he could then give us fountains of living water remember the story of him at the well with the, the the woman from Sychar and they're having a conversation about water and the woman's like hey man you got to give me whatever kind of water you got going on because I'm tired of coming to this well and he's like no no no, I'm not talking about physical water he says whoever drinks the water that I have will never thirst again the water that I have will well up in him to everlasting life but in order for that to happen our Lord and Savior had to thirst he had to thirst like hell literally He was thirsty, fulfilling prophecy, and showing that he's a human being. One of the the beliefs of Gnosticism is that Jesus had a phantom body, that he he, he didn't actually have any physicality at all because spirit is good and physical is evil in total, and that the two cannot combine. And so Jesus looked human, he sounded human, He walked like a human, he talked like a human, but he wasn't actually human, so he never suffered. He never actually broke out in a sweat. He never had muscles that fatigued. Whenever they whipped him across his back, I guess he was pretending. But here he cries out and he says, I thirst, because he actually had a real human body. He did not fake it. He did not do it halfway. He did it all the way to the end. His crying out for thirst shows us that he actually suffered for real. He did not take any shortcuts. In his physical agony, as great, as gnarly as it is, as unfathomable as it is, it wasn't anything compared to what his spirit went through. I don't know how to imagine this because we don't have any categories for this. We have relationships, and those relationships, depending on the intensity of them, hurt us differently. There are are other people in this church. There are other women in this church who I know, whom, whom I love, and if something happens to them, I'm going to be emotionally affected by it. But if something happens to my wife, if something happens to my mom, if something happens to my unborn child, that's going to be a much more severe depth of pain. But our best relationships, again, they're marked by sin. They're imperfect and the best ones only last 80 or 90 years. Jesus had been perfectly in family, in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, never created, never started, never came from anything. What was that separation like? When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was that like? We'll never know. But know that as bad as it was, as horrifying As terrifying, as painful, as agonizing as it was, he went to the cross for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, knowing that on the other side, he would be back home with his father in heaven, and he would purchase salvation for those of us who are his children. We would be with him forever. And he goes on to fulfill one more amazing picture. I know I'm going long tonight, but this has to be said. Verse 29, seemingly innocuous, seemingly unimportant, sort of a, you could, you, it's, like it's kind of a throwaway verse. You could read over it and not really under, like, even realize that you had read over it. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, Psalm 69, and so they put out a sponge full of, of the sour wine, and they placed it upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it to his mouth. That's not just Nothing. In the Old Testament, we know from the book of Exodus that Moses went before Pharaoh and he said, let the people go, let the people go, let the people go. And again and again and again, Pharaoh said no, no, and no. And ten plagues, came, well, nine plagues came through town. There was all the water turning into blood. There was the darkness. There was the gnats. There was the boils. There was every, all of the animals dropping dead. And still Pharaoh was stringent and said, no, I'm not going to let the people go. It's not going to happen. And then so finally there was the night whenever all of the firstborn in Egypt were killed. And the Lord commanded, and the Moses went to the people and said, This night, take a lamb, kill it, take the blood from that lamb, and dip in it. I'm just going to read it to you because it's right here. You shall, you shall take a lamb according to all of your families, and slaughter the Passover lamb, and you shall take a branch of hyssop. And dip it in the blood which is in the basin and touch some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside of his doorway until morning. The very moment that the Passover occurred, they dipped hyssop into the blood to mark this house is safe. This house is saved by the blood. And now here is Jesus hanging on the cross and they bring him a sponge full of vinegar from a branch of hyssop. You cannot make this stuff up. This is God's sovereignty. This is not God's plan falling apart. This is not failure. This is Jesus saving us. Therefore, when he had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. It's one word in the Greek, teleo. All is finished. All messianic prophecy is fulfilled wrath and justice are satisfied the payment of sin has been made in full the death that sin requires has now taken place the true perfect spotless lamb has been put on the altar the old testament levitical law has been upheld perfectly and has been accomplished and people might say well it is finished well, what about his resurrection what about his ascension what about his sitting at the right hand of the father that is the fruit of his labor that was a victory cry That was a celebration. The work for the propitiation of sins has been done. And this is not the last gasping of of air out of a life that's been bedraggled and beat down and now snuffed out. This is a cry of victory. Jesus is satisfied and he is content. All of the work that the Father has given him to do is now completed in full. He's not saying, I quit. It is finished is not what I'm saying when I get to the top of the Tabor stairs on the 11th time and I'm like, I'm done. I'm going home, I'm gonna watch Netflix, I'm out of here. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying this has been, what human beings need more than anything in all of the cosmos, more than anything in all of eternity has been completely done. There is no further that it can be gone. There is no further perfection that can be achieved. It is actually, completely, truly, satisfactorily done. It is complete. God himself is satisfied with the sacrifice that is our Jesus. Amen. It is finished. There's nothing that you can do to add to it. There's nothing that you can do to even fall away from it once you're in. Jesus said, those who come to me, I will never cast out. And it says that he bowed his head. And this is beautiful because it's a voluntary word. He bowed his head. Remember when he said that no one takes my life from me, but I give it of my own accord so that I may take it up again? This, this term, this Greek term for bowing his head is the exact same word that he uses in Matthew eight twenty when he says foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus laid his head down. He was at peace. The work was done. He'd been 33 years in sin-laden earth, never really at peace, at peace way more than any other human being, but he was still here. He was tempted by the devil. He was jeered at by his enemies. He was misunderstood by his peers. He was mutilated and he was killed, and now the work is done. He lived that life in perfection, in word and thought and deed, and now he is finally at peace. This is exactly what he meant in John chapter 14, whenever he told his disciples if you loved me, you would rejoice that I am leaving because I'm going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. He laid his head down to rest. He was at peace and it's a peace that he promises us. We're gonna sing in just a, a couple of minutes if I would shut up. We'll get to the song that says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. This is what the cross accomplished if you think that you're unloved if you think that you're unworthy if you think that god has abandoned you if you think that he's not paying any attention he gave his son up for this the whole the whole night the whole night of the upper room discourse Of the high priestly prayer, of the arrest, of the being led to the authorities and the mock trial, and now here at the cross. The whole night previous began in chapter 13, verse 1, where it says that he loved his own who were in the world, he loved them all the way to the end. This is proof that he stopped at nothing. This is our Jesus. This is our Jesus. This is your life, and this is your king. It's the best news. He rose from the dead three days later because he was perfect. He was overqualified for death. Death could not hold him, and in fact, this here is the very act of destroying death itself. We're told later in the New Testament that death is swallowed up in victory, and this is the victory. Come back, because we're going to talk about the resurrection next week, or maybe the week after that. I'm not really sure yet, but continue to come to hear about the power of, of Jesus Christ, okay? He's good, amen?